0: online at KFUO.org.
1: And welcome back to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture and our Lutheran confession of the faith. On today's show, we continue our study of Article 6 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the affirmative statements where we get that wonderful phrase, we believe, teach and confess with regard to the teaching on the third use of God's law. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And we welcome back my companion confessor in conversation about this article today, the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. He is the senior pastor of a Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. And serves as the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod West Southwest Region. And again, reminding you, as we did last week, that also, also notable for our conversation today, he is the author of the book Law, Life, and the Living God The Third Use of the Law in Modern American Lutheranism. Pastor Murray, welcome back to Concord Matters.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you again, Pastor Smith.
1: All right. This is a, a great series to to go over with you. You gave us so much wonderful things and uh, really just uh, one paragraph uh, or so as we started this uh uh, last week with the status of the controversy, laying out the history, uh, why this still needs to be confessed in the church today. Uh, and so today we continue with the affirmative statements, which uh, just kind of, uh, as, as you know, giving my bias here, uh, this is my favorite section. As, as I said, we get that wonderful phrase, we believe, teach, and confess. It's just the clear confession of what we believe according to scripture with the different articles of our Christian faith. And so uh, uh, great to dig into this with you today and we'll go ahead and jump right in. So this is, again, we are reading from article six of the epitome of the formula of Concord. This is the third use of God's law. We're using the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord available from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod and uh, we are picking up with the affirmative statements paragraph two affirmative statement number one the true christian teaching about this controversy we believe teach and confess that even though people who are truly believing in christ and truly converted to god have been freed and exempted from the curse and coercion of the law they are still not without the law on this account they have been redeemed by God's son in order that they may exercise themselves in the law day and night, citing Psalm 1, verse 2, and Psalm 119. Even our first parents before the fall did not live without the law. They had God's law written into their hearts because they were created in the image, in God's image, citing Genesis 1, 26 through 27, 2, 16 through 17, and 3, verse 3. All right, Pastor Murray, uh, I think this is getting at there, there's that idea out there that life perfection, which would have been life in the garden for our first parents is uh, life and perfection is without the law the idea that to be free to be set free in christ is to be free from the law but that's not what we're confessing here
2: well that's that's exactly right uh, that our first parents had a, a, a prohibition against eating uh of the tree in the middle of the garden um, so the idea that the pre-fall condition of humanity uh, was without the law, dare I say, lawless, <laughs> um, is, of course, not true. It's, it's totally false. Um, remarkably, of course, Adam and Eve uh, would not have been threatened by this prohibition on God's part. And, and that's why the fall itself is so breathtaking, so shocking. Um, and we have no idea. We can't fathom even the depth uh, of this uh, failure uh, because we've never known anything but the law as a threat and as coercion. Um, so, so Adam and Eve uh, had a unique relationship with the law before the fall in that for them, it was instruction. It was a delight. Uh, they, they, uh, they sought to fulfill it until that moment when uh, in doubt of God's word and doubt, I think ultimately of God's divinity uh, and the desire for, uh, for them to supplant God uh, in the world. Um, they uh, they chose not only to reach for that which was forbidden, uh, but to eat of it as well.
1: Yeah, I, I like what you said there, you know, saying, dare I say, lawless. And, and I think that at least highlights for me, too, um, exactly how it, it's not really happiness to be free from the law. And we see this present in countries where the rule of law isn't, all that good. I, I've spent some significant time in my life uh, in the country of Haiti, where uh, things are better than they have been at, at past times and so forth. But uh, it, the 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 law is really not great in a country like that. And I know that there are other places uh, on the earth like that. And and so they live behind walls and things like that. They're constantly in fear. And and really. You know, as we live in our country, here in the United States, where we have good rule of law, uh, we live in relative peace and security. all present pandemics aside. Uh, but uh, uh, in, in general, because we have good rule of law, there's actually peace and security. And for me, that highlights the, the citing of Psalm 119 there, uh, which just, I mean, very long Psalm, but uh, just again and again, you know, I love your law. I delight in your law. I mean, it just talks about this again and again, how the law is actually good for us. And so to be lawless uh, does not produce happiness, right?
2: That's correct. And I mean, where I see it is in teaching in our school, Um, you know, when you get a seventh or eighth grader where they're not getting good direction from their parents. Uh, For example, I can remember a child who was permitted to stay up until all hours of the next day playing video games and was, you know, never required to sleep at specific times. Well, this poor child was at at sixes and sevens all the time. His homework wasn't done. He wasn't prepared. He wasn't learning. uh, He was frustrated. He was always undergoing uh, discipline from the school. uh, And... You know, you never know how these kids are going to turn out over the long haul. But you do wonder if that lack of discipline in this child's life didn't have terribly detrimental effects uh, for him into the future. Um, So, uh, you know, having the constraints, having the envelope. uh, Now, are we always bumping up against those constraints? Of course we are. Uh, they're always beating us back into the center. Um, I think of it like an, of course an envelope. we say pushing the envelope. And this is what we see, of course, in small children. Uh, we're sometimes frustrated by them because they keep pushing the envelope. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out where the edges are so that they know, uh, you know what behavior, uh, is actually expected of them. Um, I'm, I'm a grandfather, and I love to talk about this, uh, like every grandfather does. But when a newborn is in a crib, they creep up so that the top of their head touches the end of the crib, because they want to know that there is that constraint for them there in their in their crib, um, and they find this comforting. So. Uh, all of human life is benefited uh, by having a specific code um, that we can push up against and go, wait, that is a constraint. It's comforting to, to push me back into the middle and and to keep from trespassing, that is, uh, passing the, the line condemned by God, and in the end, those who do that will have harmony with others, uh, and and live uh, a good and pious life uh, in this world. Now, you know, that, that doesn't solve the problem of law and gospel, right? But it is how daily life is lived, uh, even for the Christian, is to know that those constraints are there for their lives.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of uh, the way Hebrews talks, right? You know, no discipline feels good in the moment, uh, but in the end, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? And so that's that's kind of finding those those bounds. And and you talk about being a grandfather. I'm a father of a one year old, and I see my one year old doing this all day long, right? You know, he'll look at us, right? And you know, yeah, is this okay? Uh, and, and and part of our job right now is kind of pr- providing that that discipline. To, to say, you no, know, it will not be happy for you to run over and touch the stove while mom has it open, right? You know, this is, right. this, this is not gonna be a happy situation for you. So the law is good in that sense, right? And It, it produces a, a happy life. Um, and, sure. and, and, and you said, uh, you know, it certainly applies to the Christian, which uh, brings us into the next points then as well. And so I'm, I'm gonna read uh, affirmative statements two and three together here, because I think they, they go together. So uh, this is uh, picking up with paragraph three, affirmative statement two. We believe, teach, and confess that the preaching of the law is to be encouraged diligently. This applies not only for the unbelieving and impenitent, but also for true believers who are truly converted, regenerate, and justified through faith. And then continuing on with affirmative statement three. Although believers are regenerate and renewed in the spirit of their mind in the present life, this regeneration and renewal is not complete. It has only begun. Believers are, by the spirit of their mind, in a constant struggle against the flesh. They struggle constantly against the corrupt nature and character which cleaves to us until death. This old Adam still dwells in the understanding, the will, and all the powers of humanity. It is necessary that the law of the Lord always shine before them so that they may not start self-willed and self-created forms of serving God drawn from human devotion. The law of the Lord is also necessary so that the old Adam, citing Romans 6.6, 6, may not use his own will, but may be subdued against his will. This happens not only by the warning and threatening of the law, but also by punishments and blows, so that a person may follow and surrender himself as a captive to the Spirit. See 1 Corinthians 9.27, Romans 6.12, 7, 7, 12, Galatians 5, 6, 14, Psalm 119, Hebrews 13.21, 12. One. All right, so this is definitely what we believe and teach and confess according to Scripture with all those citations there. But go ahead, Pastor Murray. This is kind of a continuation of the thought that you had just begun for us, right?
2: Sure. So, uh, I mean, I think you get the reason for paragraph three and paragraph four. Um, in other words, that because of the jumbled nature of humans. Um, In other words, here we are as converted. We're the new creature. Uh, We're we're the new person. We're the new man uh, by way of our baptism. And yet, on the other hand, old Adam uh, is always trying to claw his way back. Uh, We have to drag him along uh, oh, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, cries Paul. Uh, so we have this old Adam we're sort of dragging along as baggage. This is the, the you know, the sack of worms, I think, that Luther is referring to. Uh, so we're dragging this old Adam along, and uh, he needs to be sort of, um, co- of course, coerced, uh, beaten uh, and and uh, held down under baptismal waters in confession uh, and repentance and contrition uh, on a daily basis. Um, so despite the fact that we are certainly true believers, uh, we still need uh, the law, if for no other reason than that uh, old Adam uh, needs to be constantly uh, beaten down. Now, of course, you know where this is difficult is that it's not so simple as to say humans are sort of a an either or. Um, you can't look at the human and say, ah, that is the new man, ah, that is the old man. So I know which to which word of God to apply um, in in every case in reference to um, the, the 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 kind of mixed composite, if you will, of the human as old man, new man, um, and, you know, I think there's a fair amount of evidence from psychology, as psychologists even are trying to figure out how best to deal with the human person uh, with all of its mixed motivations and so on. Uh, you know, and this has not been sorted out to my knowledge uh, as yet. So in Christian theology, we always understand the human person. Um, it every uh, constitutive part of human uh, as divided at conversion uh, between this old man, new man. So then the result is that the human person always needs to hear both law and gospel um, because every human person uh, is, is in fact suffering from this sort of divided character. And I I like certainly what uh, the the epitome says uh, right in the middle of paragraph four. This old Adam still dwells in the understanding, the will, and all the powers of humanity. And I do believe that the formulators wanted to make clear the complexity of the human person post conversion. Uh, so notice the number of things listed there and and then sort of the all encompassing and all the powers of humanity. Um, so, so it isn't so simple as to say, oh yes, uh, I know that only the gospel should be proclaimed here. Oh yes, only the law should be proclaimed there. Um, for any individual person. So law, law and gospel continue need, needing to be proclaimed uh, to every Christian believer. Absolutely right.
1: Now, you, you talk about beating back the old Adam there, and you brought in that, you know, even psychology recognizes this. Um, and, and, and I know also there at Memorial in Houston, you guys have a classical Lutheran school um, and, and my wife and I are proponents of classical Lutheran education as well and, and, and part of that. Um, and, and this is an idea that we see even present in ancient philosophy, right? Uh, Aristotle and Plato certainly saw this at work as well and, and plays out in what we do in classical education, right? That this is what training in virtue is all about, that we learn to subdue the... Pe- the passions, uh, right in the middle of paragraph four there, it says, um, talking about that old Adam that he may not use his own will, but may be subdued against his will, right? Uh, to, to me, that echoes back kind of that classical education of the training in virtue, right?
2: Certainly. I mean, this is the, the problem with progressivism and education, because it presumes the Basic goodness of humanity <laughs> and I don't know what about the 20th century's history is unclear in this regard. Um, I think it was Chesterton who actually claimed that original sin was the one Christian doctrine that was um, able to be proven by reason. In other words, you don't have to look around very far to know how deeply depraved humanity is on its own. Uh, and, of course, classical education, especially Lutheran classical education, uh, begins with the presupposition uh, that old Adam in every child has to be beaten back. Uh, and, and we can't just sort of let him learn willy-nilly, uh, but rather we have to order and direct by discipline and, and requirements uh, what what the child is is to do. Of course, later in life, and, and all adults, I think, uh, know this, if, if they're at least candid with themselves, how delighted they are that some teacher would not let them off the hook. I, I had a third-grade teacher who just decided that uh, my laziness was impairing my ability to learn, and she declined to accept my laziness, and there were times when I did not like that teacher, and yet she was the best teacher I ever had. Uh, what what a huge difference she made in my life. So you're, you're grateful for that discipline, um, even if it causes some calluses on your fingers from having to rewrite things, as it was for me as a third grader.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, that is a real distinction, uh, uh, especially for us in Lutheran education in general, that that we not give in to this idea that is present out there, which I'm with you. I just don't understand how you can even have this when you look at the world around you. But but the idea that people are basically good. For for us, coming from Scripture as Lutherans, we, we take a look and we say, no, we, we have a sinful nature. We can't deny that. I, I used to, I was a interim uh, vacancy uh, uh uh, head of a Lutheran school here in Southern Illinois for, for a few months. And I remember uh, parents coming to me, uh, you know, just completely surprised that their child was acting out and things like that. And I said, well, why is this a surprise to you? We're, we're a Lutheran <laughs> school. We, you know that he has a, a sinner in him, right? You know, he, he is a <laughs> sinner. Uh, he is also yeah. a saint as well. And and then this this brings in what you were talking about there. And part of, um, you know, beating down that old Adam, you know, you, you need the law and the gospel um, and the right distinguishing of it to, to, to lead us in the way of righteousness, right? And I, I think Pastor Paul is the first that, I mean, it's so obvious, but uh, Pastor Paul uh, is the headmaster at your uh, classical Lutheran school there in Houston. And uh, he and I were talking at one of the uh, consortium for classical Lutheran education uh, gatherings. And he was talking about, you know, this is exactly what Luther does in the catechism uh, when we talk about baptism, right? You know, that he encourages us to daily get up, make the sign of the cross, reminding ourselves of our baptism and drowning that old sinful man, right, Then a new man may arise. This is this is exactly what Luther is leading us in uh, and, again, should be foundational for us in our Christian life, let alone in our Christian education, right?
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, one of the funniest things I've ever heard from uh, a school parent was, my child would never lie. <laughs> and this yes. misses Uh, the reality uh, on a number of levels. Number one, it misses it biblically. Uh, Number two, um, it's so Pollyanna, uh, you can't possibly have been paying any attention to your child's actual life uh, or actions to come to this conclusion. Um, I I tell people that um, the the only person who can conclude that there's no original sin and that infants don't have original sin is someone that's never had one to take care of. Uh, You know, the infant is the most self-centered human being. Uh, From from birth, they they perhaps have some inkling of mother, and you're grateful for that. Uh, But all they're really thinking about is a dry diaper, a full belly, uh, and a warm bed, and the rest of you will suffer until I get it. Um, And so uh, original sin is quite obvious, uh, especially in children uh, from the earliest age. And this is where, you know, the law shows us uh, the desperate need of all people, uh, including infants, uh, for baptism and for the forgiveness of sins that comes through it and the death of old Adam uh, and the raising to newness of life that, that comes in and through baptism. And again, this is why uh, the, the passages, you know, would also include Romans 6 in its entirety, it seems to me, uh, when talking about uh, this, this business of the third use of the law.
1: Yeah, again, as a father of a one-year-old, I just have to give a hearty amen to everything you just said there. I mean, life—life just—my life is over, and it's all about him and making him happy, right? You know, this is clearly the simple, selfish nature coming out. Um, But at the same time. you know, kind of connected in with here, because we believe in what we call the simul justus et picata, right? You know, the saint and the sinner simultaneously at the same time. Uh, sometimes it's really offensive to parents, especially when... Uh, you know, they, they don't kind of operate with this understanding that we should have from Scripture and as Lutherans um, about, you know, the, the saint and sinner are together there. It's sometimes offensive to parents uh, when you talk about their child as a sinner, right? I mean, have, have you encountered that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, how dare you say these uh, things about my perfect little Johnny, um and I, I suppose they'll still be saying that when they have to visit him in prison. Uh, you know, Luther says, if you don't obey your parents, you will obey the hangman. Um, and so uh, it's frustrating to hear parents with this unrealistically Pollyanna view of their own children's situation. Um, but I mean, I do think it's, it's indicative of our, our dictum that the law always brings wrath. And so what we're saying about children um, as sinners generates wrath on the part of their Pollyanna parents, if not on the part of the child himself. I mean, when I'm disciplined, my first reaction is to rebel. How dare you? Uh, You have no right. Well, yeah, maybe it is true that I have done it or said it or thought it. Um, And maybe I need to get on my knees and repent uh, and and beg for God's mercy. Um, uh, it's it's truthful that I'm a sinner. Let's be real.
1: Yeah, and and again, we just what we have to do then is balance the law and the gospel and the proclamation of that. We we don't ignore the fact that they are a saint also. Uh, and sometimes I think that's what people fear is is that we're we're just saying that that they're you know uh, there's no. Uh, Acknowledgement of that the fact that their child has been baptized and redeemed, and so we certainly don't want to neglect that proclamation either.
2: Well, no, and and see, I would say that you can't preach the law in its full ferocity and wrath unless you have the Lutheran doctrine of justification, Um, because otherwise. Your preaching of the full ferocity of God's anger against sin uh, will have one of two effects. Number one, the person will despair and say, I'm damned without any doubt uh, because I have failed miserably time and time again uh, to, to love God and my neighbor and show proper respect to authority and so on. And the list goes on. Uh, or the result is that people get smug and go, "Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that." Like the rich young man uh, in the Gospels. All of these I have kept since my youth. Oh, yeah. Let's see how that works out for you then. Um, so, so the the only church I think that teaches perfectly clearly about the gospel is one that's unafraid to uh, drop the whole law and wrath of God on sinners because only we have the solution. Um, it's, it's a physician thing, right? Um, when, when they uh, diagnose you, uh, say, with cancer, you want that physician then to say, this is a bad disease, However, your particular um, disease is susceptible to this particular uh, chemotherapy and surgery combination, and, you know, we'll get you through this. Uh, But you don't want him to say, "Um, you've got cancer, it's inoperable, you're going to die. And and so unless you have the remedy, that is, unless you have Christ, unless you have the doctrine of justification, uh, unless you have the forgiveness of sins, uh, you, you have a hard time preaching the whole law and will of God um, because you're always going to try to pull your punches so that you don't destroy people. But in, in, in faithful preaching, the goal is, in fact, to destroy so that all that's left is trust in Christ alone.
1: Yeah, and in talking about faithful preaching, then, too, that's going to bring out, you know, sometimes what I see present in that, too, is that they, they want desire to see an acknowledgement the good fruits of faith that are coming out as well but to get that we're going to have to get the another distinction lutheranism is all about making proper distinctions and uh, right. we'll get that on the other side of this break when we come back and pick up with paragraph uh, 5 affirmative uh, thesis number 4 please join us right after this
2: Hi, I'm Gary Duncan, the
0: Executive Director of KFUO Radio. We are all impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. All of the KFUO staff is practicing social distancing by working from home offices and temporary home studios. Our promise to you is that we will continue to bring you the Word of Christ in our programming and worship services, the clear message that we've been proclaiming since 1924. During this worldwide pandemic, we will continue to share the comfort of Scripture God is our refuge and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. That's from Psalm 46.1. Thank you for listening and supporting KFUO Radio. And rest assured that when you turn on the radio, click on our live stream, or download your favorite podcast, we will be here proclaiming Christ for you anytime, anywhere. KFUO.org
1: to Concord Matters as we are continuing our discussion of the affirmative statements of the epitome of formula of concord article six the third use of god's law and we were just saying right before the break as pastor murray was leading us in in the clear preaching of justification once again we're back to that chief article of our christian faith and how it relates here uh the proper distinction of law and gospel uh but also then as as we do in lutheranism we're also going to need to make a proper distinction when it comes to the works of the law and the fruit of the spirit, and how we see that work out. And so we're going to pick up here with uh, paragraph five of affirmative statement number four of this article six. And I'm going to go ahead and cover also uh, affirmative statement number five, paragraph six, and uh, read these, and then we'll we'll discuss this proper distinction. Now consider the distinction between the works of the law, citing Galatians two sixteen, and the fruit of the spirit citing Galatians 5, 22 through 23. We believe, teach, and confess that the works of the law are those that are done according to the law. They are called works of the law as long as they are only forced out of a person by teaching the punishment and threatening of God's wrath. Then affirmative statement number five, paragraph six. Fruits of the Spirit, however, are the works wrought by God's Spirit who dwells in believers. The Spirit works through the regenerate. These works are done by believers because they are regenerate spontaneously and freely. They act as though they knew of no command, threat, or reward. In this way, God's children live in the law and walk according to God's law. St. Paul calls this the law of Christ and the law of my mind in his letters. See Romans 7.23-25, 8.7, 8.2, and Galatians So, Pastor Murray, go ahead and take us away here. Uh, Help us understand this distinction between the works of the law and the fruit of the Spirit.
2: Sure. Well, it has to do, I think, primarily with coercion. Um, The works of the law are those works, according to the law, that are coerced from us uh, by way of the law's threats, uh, the the uh, fruits of the spirit, or fruit of the spirit, uh, are works. I mean, we have to don't lose track of that. They are works, but they're worked by God's Spirit, uh, who dwells in believers, as the epitome says. So, um, so both things are happening at the same time in the Christian life. In other words we're facing the law as a coercion and that results in works, uh, the works of the law, uh, which are in no way shape or form justifying. Uh, but as a gift, we also are um, having worked in us by the Spirit, uh, not by coercion, uh, this, this uh, service uh, that we would provide Uh, to others. So these, these are the works of the, of the spirit, Um, works in both cases, right? So let's, you know, we have to be really cautious that we don't turn, uh, the fruit of the spirit into the gospel, um, itself. It's, you know, it's obvious that the works of the spirit are created by the gospel because the spirit works through the gospel, uh, uh, to, uh, to enable us, to to empower us, uh, you know, the, the gospel is the power of God uh, to, to do that which is good and pleasing, to work sanctification in us, to keep it very, very simple. Um, so, and, and this is done uh, in the new man or by the new man or through the new man in the spirit uh, as though there was no coercion at all. That there's delight in the law of the Lord, uh, you know, as the psalmist says, uh, and on it he meditates day and night. So um so this is the way we are uh, as converted, regenerate persons. Uh, we are coerced uh, by the law insofar as we still drag along, you know, the, the worm sack of old Adam. Uh, as it infects uh, our whole person or, or divides our whole person, maybe is a better way to put it. Um, so, so the Bible does make this distinction. Um, but of course, it does seem to me uh, that these works of the Spirit um, are still normed by the law. Uh, they remain works. Um, and the law is telling us that which is uh, pleasing to God uh, and and gives us again uh, that envelope. although you know I think the works of the spirit are always turning us in toward uh, what is good and God pleasing. Um, it's It's not sort of you know beating us away from the edges.
1: Now, last week, we talked about the threefold functions of the law, uh, sometimes called the uses of the law, as we we'll see that even present in the title here. Uh, does does this, you know, facing law as coercion or as gift, uh, play into that threefold function at all?
2: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, certainly, again, uh, this has to do with the complexity of humans, and, and so, And we'll talk maybe about this when we get into paragraph seven. Uh, um, But, you know, every uh, word of law, I think, can function um, in the human person uh, and simultaneously uh, be all three uses, really, or at least two uses the second and third. you know, it, it always is a threat to us. It always brings wrath. Uh, and on the other hand, um, insofar as we are regenerate, we're looking at this in, as instruction, um, as knowing uh, that which is pleasing, and of course, advising uh, as to what should be uh, avoided and that which is not pleasing. Uh, to God. And I, I think, you know, the, the classic e- example from the Reformation is um, the man made uh, pieties of monasticism, uh, which were thought to be not only, uh, you know, great, but even superior to uh, baptism. Luther, of course, brings us back to a simpler piety, one that says, I know what is good and pleasing to God because God's own word has said so and that which is beyond or outside of that is not necessarily pleasing to God, is not divine worship, um, and and that which, you know, is not of faith is sin. So uh, we walk away from those things that might be coercive, certainly. The monastic rule was certainly coercive, um, but it was not not pleasing to God. So as we said last week, in some ways, the third use of the law provides a certain freedom in that it, it turns us away uh, from obeying uh, the, the uh, beggarly, earthly, or worldly um, spirits, as St. Paul puts it in Galatians.
1: Okay, and then I was wondering about this, too. So I, when I was a young pastor, I... Uh ill-advisedly, I'll say this right out from the start, uh, in teaching about the law in a confirmation class in the Lutheran school, um, there was a baseball bat in the room. And so I picked up the baseball bat and I stood next to one of the students and I said, now what keeps me from using this baseball bat on this student? And I kind of just held it there. And uh, of course they went home and told their parents that pastor was going to hit them with a baseball bat. And that was not the <laughs> point of the lesson at all. Uh, so I, I don't use this uh, image anymore, but uh, you know, I was, I was teaching them that it's, it's the threat. It's the coercion of the law that, that it was, is at work restraining me there. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, I don't want to hit them cause I don't want to go to jail. You know, I, I kind of like, uh, living in freedom and outside of, uh, the, the constraints of a prison and things like that. Right. Um, but then also in connecting in as gift, um, and, and this maybe isn't a, a perfect uh, segue into the Matthew, uh, text where, where Jesus is teaching about the sheep and the goats. And and he talks about how the sheeps, they're not the sheep. They're not even aware uh that uh they were doing these good works um that uh you know the 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 goats were you know kind of doing it under only the threat and coercion you know they were only doing it because they they didn't want the wrath and and it actually doesn't serve them in the end right uh it's not good enough that i don't want to go to prison uh in doing the law um but but the the works done in faith of the sheep can you kind of talk about that uh relation a little bit there
2: Sure. So, I mean, first of all, you don't use the bat on the kid in catechism because you want the best for them. You're their shepherd. Um, And beyond that, not only do you not use the bat on the child, um, you are seeking their every bodily and physical need, uh, every physical good for them. Um, And that's one of the reasons why you're there teaching catechism. Um, I do find it remarkable, of course, in in the St. Matthew Little Apocalypse uh, that the believers are like surprised. When did we see you? Um, and so notice how turned toward the neighbor... Uh, the good works of the Christians are. Oh, and the other thing you always, I always point this out to people when they bring me to, to the little apocalypse, is I say, now notice that the sheep and the goats are divided at the very head of the thing. So the division has already occurred um, by way of the eternal judge on the basis of justification. Then we turn around and say, okay, now, what are the evidences of these things? Uh, You know, as in our our wonderful, it's the Paul Sparatus hymn, work, serve thy neighbor and provide a proof that faith is living. So we end up seeing a vindication of the gracious care of God for believers Um, in their desire to serve their neighbor, and in serving their neighbor, uh, serve Christ. Um, And so, you know, they feed the hungry, they clothe the naked, they give to drink that cup of cold water, and so on and so forth.
1: So, So in paragraph six, affirmative statement number five, it says these works are done by believers because they are regenerate spontaneously and freely. So what would you say then... To, you have a parishioner comes to you and says, Pastor Murray, um, I'm worried because the, these good works—they're not coming out spontaneously and freely in my life.
2: Um, well, for starters, and I think you know this is this is from Walter's Pastoral that that when people worry about such things, their worry is pastorally indicative of the fact that this is actually not a problem. Um, you know, the person we're concerned for is the person who is saying, uh, I don't do good works. I don't want to do good works. Um, you know, good works are for weak people. I'm going to get what I can. However, well, now we're talking about somebody who needs the divine law dropped on them like a ton of bricks, but the person who comes and, and is kind of agonizing and, and worried is perhaps especially one of those persons who says, when did I see you hungry and thirsty and naked and so on? Um, they, I, I, I think we can be sort of self-unaware. I find this um, personally uh, where, where and, and I know every pastor's had this experience, where people come to you sometimes weeks, months, years later, and say, Pastor, you said this to me at just the right time in my life, and it meant so much to me. It helped me get over the death of my father uh, or, you know, whatever it is. And, And I know you've had the experience where you just go, oh, I said that, did I? Oh, really? I'm so glad to hear it, I have no recollection. So, um, you know, but certainly, and the example I give with my people is, okay, I've got hospital calls to make. My first inclination is, I don't really wanna get into the car, drive to the medical center, drive through the parking garages till I can find a spot, you know, walk, blah, 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 till I get to the hospital room. Well, you get there, I mean, this is obviously coercion, you don't do your hospital calls, you're in trouble. Um, but when you get there, you go, oh, this was such a wonderful situation where God put me in a place to give peace and comfort to somebody in a crisis. And, you know, so so you end up sort of on both sides of the law here. You're both coerced, of course, but you're also finding some delight um, in the work and office that God gives you to do. Um, and this delight often happens only in the moment. So it isn't like you can plan the third use of the law. You know what I mean? In other words, it's not like anyone says, Whoa, oh, I'd really like to do some good works. You're actually surprised. You go, this is what's happened. How did this happen? You know, so so it it becomes this wonderful uh, surprise um even even to the person who performs the the good work
1: yeah, maybe even a reference to uh the raising of children again then too you know sometimes it, it's amazing how many parents talk about you know they they look back and and their children you know, reference something that they learned from them and everything. And, and all the parent can remember is, wow, it was a real struggle to just raise you at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah but uh, right. then the blessed fruit comes out and, and I like what you brought in with Walther there too, uh, in his, uh, pastoral theology, uh, that, uh, you this relates to what we're going to cover in the next uh, affirmative statement that both the the penitent and impenitent and walkabouts with walter are always welcome on this show anyway but uh you you said the one that we're worried about is the one who is and i'm basically summarizing here the, the one who's lazy about their sin the one who's impenitent and not worrying about it um, but yet the law remains Uh, for them as well as for the penitent. So we'll go ahead and cover uh, affirmative theses number six, paragraph seven here, and talk about that. The law is and remains both to the penitent and impenitent, both to regenerate and unregenerate people, one and the same law. It is God's unchangeable will. The difference, as far as obedience is concerned, is only in the person. For one who is not yet regenerate follows the law out of constraint and unwillingly does what it requires of him, as also the regenerate do according to the flesh. But the believer, so far as he is regenerate, acts without constraint and with a willing spirit to do what no threat of the law, however severe, could ever force him to do. All right, so go ahead and lay that out for us, Pastor Mary.
2: Sure. So, I mean, again, and and this is, I think, sort of the big punchline to the epitome, at least uh, epitome six, um, that uh, that the law remains the law. And so for both the believer and the unbeliever, the regenerate and the unregenerate, uh, the law is still there for them. Uh, What what is the difference? Uh, has to do not with the law, not with God, and to some degree, not even with the content of preaching. It has to do with the difference in persons, right? Um, So the difference, as far as obedience is concerned, is only in the person. So you have the unregenerate person who's simply looking at the law as a complete, absolute threat, um, and on the other hand, you have the believer who sees it, I think, both, you know, not as a believer, but, but the believer who's both old man and new man sees it both as a threat and as uh, an instruction, a blessing, uh, a, a very good, pious direction for his life. And so uh, we have to keep straight that, you know, as we deal with the law, the difference on how people respond to it really has to do with anthropology, not the content of the law itself.
1: All right. And as as it pertains to the life of be, the believer then, too, I, th- I think we're going to push forward here and get just the one negative statement that we have on this article and kind of bring these things together here, too, of why we would reject any teaching that is contrary to what we have just laid out here. So this is... Uh, Uh, Paragraph 8, the one negative statement under this Article 6. We reject the teaching that the law must not be applied to Christians and true believers in the way and degree mentioned above, but only to unbelievers, not Christians and the unrepentant. Such a teaching would be erroneous, which harms and conflicts with Christian discipline and true godliness. I think this really kind of helps us bring together everything that we talked about as we talked about discipline and 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 the training and righteousness uh, that uh, we, we have with a clear confession of this. Why is this so dangerous then that we need to reject this teaching?
2: Uh, well, I mean, because nobody has the right to simply reject any portion of the Word of God. Um, it, it, it's certainly um, a fourth, third, and first commandment issue. Um, you know, we, we don't get to uh, pick and choose. Um, the, the Word of God isn't a buffet, um, it is the divine speech, and we are bound as Christians uh, to proclaim it in its fullness and wholeness in both law and gospel to both believers and unbelievers. Um, and so uh, it's it. We, we just simply don't have the right to junk one part of the Word of God. It's not our it's not our right.
1: Yeah, would this come in with the uh, the teaching of what we call antinomianism? There is no law, right? Uh, which connects us back to the first affirmative statement that you know, at no point in from creation onward, were we ever antinomian, were we without the law, and so we can't just simply do away with it, because in a sense, that's what Adam and Eve tried to do, and it kind of led to our whole problem in, in in the first place, right? Right. Well, I do think that
2: first phrase in the negative statement is is once again sort of slamming Agricola and his views. Um, even though really there's not much about Agricola's views in the foregoing, so that's a little. I mean, it is surprising, but I, I guess they, you know, they just want to be thorough in this uh, statement of the negative. And then, of course, uh, the second part of it, um, you know, that that uh, this word has to be proclaimed to believers and, and unbelievers for the sake of discipline, um, certainly goes back to the debates about the. Um, uh, the Saxon Visitation articles, but also after the death of Luther, the claim of the Roman Catholics that Lutherans were just pigs um, and wanted to live undisciplined lives. Oh, well, you know, there's forgiveness. Oh, well, there's justification. Oh, well, we get to do what we want. Well, uh, no, that isn't the way the Word of God actually works. So there has to be that discipline, of course.
1: Absolutely, and well tied in there with the the history and and how all of this developed as we laid out last week as well. With uh, just about a minute and a half here left, go ahead and summarize for us then, uh, Pastor Murray, what does the law of God do in the life of the Christian? What's its place, especially as it pertains to this teaching on the third use of the law?
2: Sure. So the law of God for the Christian, um, insofar as he still has the old Adam— is to coerce uh, that old Adam uh, to keep its hands on old Adam's throat uh, and to keep, you know, drowning him in baptism. Um, And then secondly, um, it also shapes the Christian life um, by telling us that which is good and God-pleasing in the sight of God, how we are to serve our neighbor and love him uh, as God has loved us, um, and so it, it tells us what is, what is good um, and frees us from being coerced um, by uh, human uh, standards of goodness or rightness for which there is no biblical warrant. So it, it has both positive and negative effect in, in the Christian life at, you know, for the regenerate person.
1: All right. And thank you very much. That's Pastor Scott Murray. Thank you. It's been a real honor for you to have you join us for Concord Matters uh, and talking us through uh, what we believe, teach, and confess according to the third use of God's law. And if you have a question or comment that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord, you can leave us a message by phone 314-996-1542, email kfuo at kfuo.org, on social media at KFUO Radio. Thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.